Now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day here in Kamloops. It's going to be hot again. It was a hot weekend already. Uh, great for us. Not so good on the wildfire front. Uh, we got a big show for you to head off, uh, start off your weekend. Uh, we're going to talk to a doctor out of the BC Children's Hospital on the topic of young children who are battling diabetes and maybe a little bit of hope in their fight. Uh, we'll also talk to the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association as they declare a health human resources emergency, specifically here in the interior. We'll find out why and we'll end off the show talking to the mayor of Quinnell, Bob Simpson, as Tolco shutters one of its big sawmills in his community and find out what the impact is and what's next. But we're going to start off our Monday morning as we always do, talking to Kyla Lee from Acumen Law. Good morning, Kyla. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. How was the weekend? Good? Uh, yeah, it was good. I got lots done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of these days you're going to have to take some time off, Kyla. Um, I'm going to New York this week, so. Oh, there you go. Right, but I even yeah. know that's a lightning fast trip too, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we start off with the big news uh, last, and we did touch on this a little bit in our Monday chat last week, but there's been uh, obviously some major developments, but uh, not one, but two big reports on money laundering. Uh, we found out a lot on the luxury car side. Uh, huge news on the real estate side and, and estimations of the overall impact of money laundering in this province just last year at about seven and a half billion of the lion's share of that going into the real estate industry. Uh, an interesting aspect of the report sort of opened the door to um, people aiding and abetting this activity, perhaps including lawyers. I uh, just wanted to get your take on that. Is this, is this a concern that people in your industry have been turning a blind eye or willfully helping out these money launderers or, 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 or not? Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of the legal profession is concerned about, you know, the few bad apples out there who are uh, either willfully blind to the fact that their clients are obviously laundering money through them or who are, you know, too close to what their clients are doing that they're involved in the work. Um, You know, and and we've seen examples of that in some recent high-profile law society investigations. Um, There's a huge potential for that uh, in the case of Hong Guo, uh, the lawyer um, who had uh, several million dollars go missing from her trust account and who claims that it was laundered through a casino by her assistant and uh, somehow made its way back to China. Um, and, you know, as lawyers, we pay for that. Um, our, our fees and our insurance fees that we pay goes to cover those costs when things like that happen. And every time something bad like this happens, it costs us more money. So as a profession, we're very concerned about it. So what does the profession do? I, I, I assume the Law Society ultimately uh, will have the power to do something. Uh, will it do something, and what is that something? Well, in cases where trust money goes missing and, and bad things happen in that regard, generally speaking, the Law Society comes down on people very harshly. Uh, disbarment, uh, lengthy suspensions, and high fines are incredibly common. But the Law Society is going to have to change its approach because right now, um, clearly as a result of, of this investigation that uh, Dr. German has done, um, not enough is being done by the Law Society to ensure that money laundering isn't happening through lawyers' trust accounts and that lawyers aren't being taken advantage of because of the special status that we have of, of having this privilege with respect to money that comes in and goes out. So I think the Law Society is going to have to develop a framework for its own investigations into money that's coming into lawyers' trust accounts to ensure that it's not part of money laundering and perhaps develop its own investigative force to deal specifically with that issue. 
Uh, something else that, uh, of note, uh, and we're going to get into the Begbie thing in a minute here, but uh, first I want to talk to you about, and it even happened to me, I was driving uh, back and forth to the coast this weekend, and we stopped in Merritt uh, to hit up some dinner on the way down, and we sat in the drive-thru, and uh, I paid, and then we were waiting in the line to get the food, and I pulled out my phone, I thought, here I am, I'm parked in this drive-thru, I'm not on the highway, I'm not on the road, I can just do a quick check and see what's going on, see if anyone's trying to reach out, that kind of thing. Uh, but I note uh, that there was some news stories that uh, police were actually checking drive-thru lineups and, and handing out distracted driving tickets. So uh, what's going on here? Is, is, it, is it wrong to check your phone in the drive-thru? What's going on? My view of the law is that it's not wrong to check your phone in the drive-thru because the distracted driving provisions only apply to um, highways, the part, the traveled portion of the roadway. Um, a drive-thru is private property. Um, there is case law interpreting the definition of highway in the Motor Vehicle Act that's so exempted places where you're invited to drive your vehicle and park your vehicle and, and do things with your vehicle if it's directly related to the purpose of the property's ownership. So for a restaurant that offers a drive-through, if you're in the drive-through, the only reason you're there is directly related to why the restaurant exists, to sell you food. Um, and so it, it falls outside of the scope of a highway or industrial road, in, in my interpretation of the Motor Vehicle Act. So yep. I'm on side with take your phone out and use it at the drive-through. So would those tickets stand, the ones that were given out then, or no? Well, people are going to have to challenge them in court, and it's likely going to require an argument uh, about whether a drive-thru is a highway and an interpretation by the court for a definitive issue. But it's definitely something that I would happily argue. I'd love to take one of those on as a test case, um, because I think that this is an area, again, where we need more clarification from the court so that the police and the public can be fully informed of what the expectations are. Interesting. Uh, another sort of uh, legal-related story, but and it's one we've seen play out before. I know down in Victoria they removed the, the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, citing uh, basically just sort of the, the colonial rewriting of history and who he was and concerns about uh, his views and treatment of First Nations in his time as our Prime Minister. Uh, and in uh, New Westminster recently, uh, that council voted 4-2 to two, uh, to remove the statue of Judge Begbie. Uh, otherwise known as the Hanging Judge, who has a certain sort of mythology built up around him as a no-nonsense gruff dude who uh, roamed uh, the wild west of British Columbia and brought justice in and didn't take any you-know-what from anybody. Uh, but uh, as we've learned, uh, this is maybe not the entire picture of Mr. Begbie, who has a much more complicated past, including around First Nations. Uh, just your sense on, on, the, on the removal of the statue is the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, where do you fall? within the scope of the right thing to do. I actually wrote a blog post about um, Judge Bigby's statue, among other representations that are problematic for uh, Indigenous people sort of dealing with the legal system, and I think it is um, harmful to Indigenous people, particularly because of how Indigenous people in Canada are over-represented in our justice system as defendants in criminal cases, as people trying to get their kids back in child apprehension cases. For you to have to go to the courthouse to face those issues and as you're walking up the steps of the courthouse every time confronted by a man who who you know in your history is famous for hanging leaders of of uh, first nations communities that doesn't put you in the right mental state um to be to be litigating your case and it doesn't fill people who are faced with that with confidence that they're going to have a fair hearing and so it's an issue of representation um if we have positive representation 
actions of uh, people from Indigenous communities to mitigate that, that would be one thing. But all we have is Judge Bagby standing there looming over the new Westminster courthouse. Um, and that can really send the wrong message to Indigenous people who are trying to access justice at that place. And for people who don't know, in 1864, he, uh, in Cornell, uh, he uh, sentenced, found guilty and sentenced to hang uh, five Sokotine chiefs and the following year a sixth something that the province apologized to that First Nation for in 2014. Um, when I hear about this, I mean, I'm obviously, I think, okay, um, I get the point. I'm on side with the point. But I wonder if we're squandering an educational opportunity instead of, you know, uh, maybe remove the plaque or, or use the statue in a way to go, okay, you know, we've, we've sold this story to this time on this person, uh, but now we want you to, to use this statue to kind of learn more about the issue and gain a better I guess at the end of the day I'm nervous that we kind of put these things away and move them out of sight we will fail to learn the lessons that, that were of value and then fall down the, the, the hole of uh, history repeating itself at some point I don't disagree with that, and I think New Westminster was a perfect place where that could have happened. There was ample space around the statue, like physical space. We could have made statues of uh, the um, the First Nations leaders that were executed by him um, to put next to him and put some educational information, to put all of that information into context so that people understand the history of how Indigenous people have been struggling with fairness in the justice system, you know, even up until now. Um, and so that that's in the minds of people as they're coming into the courthouse and they recognize these historical injustices and that helps them to achieve reconciliation in court proceedings. And our last topic, and it's just a horrific story, and I find, I mean, I find it horrific anyway. As a father, since becoming a father, I'm, I'm especially uh, sort of uh, sensitive to these kind of cases. But uh, we had an awful case in Burnaby last week. Uh, where a toddler was left in a car uh, in, hot, in hot temperatures and uh, and died. Um, I'm not sure of the exact circumstances around why that toddler was left in the car. Um, you know, obviously an awful thing. I assume, that, I hope the parents are, are feeling unbelievably guilty about this. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, uh, special circumstances aside, depending on what happened there, but what, what are the legalities surrounding something like this, and especially in light of uh, this province's top cop and Mike Farnworth now, you know, kind of saying, well, maybe we should have some kind of a legislative solution to this. Again, horrific story, awful story, heartbreaking story, but what role does sort of, of law and legislation play out in this? I think law and legislation is really misplaced when it comes to situations like this. Um, I mean, we're not hearing about stories of people leaving their children in their cars, uh, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly, or even annual basis. And so crafting a piece of legislation to deal with it, presumably through some type of administrative penalty scheme in British Columbia, doesn't really achieve any public purpose. And it seems like a lot of public resources that are spent trying to solve a problem that by and large doesn't exist. And while these tragic cases do happen, generally speaking, when the investigations are concluded, it's an honest, horrific mistake made by a parent that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their lives, that ruins their lives. 
Um, and often in these cases, it doesn't rise to a level of criminal fault such that criminal charges are imposed. And there's a good reason for that. You know, in our, in our justice system and in our criminal law, we recognize the difference between people just making mistakes, which happens, and actions that fall short of a standard of care that you're supposed to uh, apply to your child that is reckless with regard to their life or safety, which would result in criminal charges. Kyla, always a pleasure. Look forward to chatting again next week. Thanks so much for uh, starting off our week here. Thanks for having me. That's Acumen Law's Kyla Lee touching on a bunch of issues, and we talk to Kyla every single Monday here on The Woodford Show. We'll take a quick break, and on the other side, we'll discuss the battle that some young children are having with diabetes and perhaps some hope on that front. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Digging deeper into the day's top stories. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Brendan Hirsch from BC Children's Hospital. Good morning, doctor. How are you? Hi, Shane. Good morning. I'm well. Thanks for uh, taking a few minutes of your day. Really appreciate it. Um, before we get into your study uh, involving uh, insulin pumps and, and their role in helping children battle diabetes, I was, uh, until I started doing some research and, and reading, uh, reading up on it a little bit prior to this, I was unaware that children uh, were battling diabetes. I had associated that with something that you get later in life. Uh, apparently I am wrong, but I note in the release here, uh, in the preamble, it says over 2,000 children in this province live with type 1 diabetes. Uh, how young children are we talking, and how are children getting diabetes? Um, oh, so great question, Shane, and thanks for asking, because it's obviously an area where there is some confusion in the general public about type 1 diabetes is, is obviously very real for the more than 2,000 kids in their families in BC who are, who are working with it and managing it every day of their lives. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition where the body uh, gradually starts to lose the ability to produce insulin. In this way, these children re require insulin to be provided to them as uh, what is ultimately a life-sustaining treatment and allows them to have healthy blood sugar uh, through their childhood and adulthood and, and hopefully to uh, live as healthy a life as possible. So this is a major medical condition requiring intensive medical therapy. Traditionally, that's always been done in the form of insulin injections, so quite literally drying up insulin out of a syringe or into a syringe out of a vial. More recently, in about the past decade in BC, there's been coverage for youth to use something called an insulin pump. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about that. What, what is the insulin pump? How does it work? And, and more importantly, what sort of, uh, what sort of uh, hope is it providing these children as they battle type 1 diabetes? Well, the insulin pumps are really quite amazing technology. It allows the child to wear a device on their body that's providing insulin continuously uh, uh, through a tiny tube that goes under their skin. So rather than injecting insulin two, three, four, five, six or more times a day with a syringe, they suddenly have the ability to make adjustments to their insulin care simply by pushing buttons on a pump device. It requires a lot of effort, it requires a lot of attention, um, but it comes with some really wonderful advantages for the youth and families who use them. How big is the insulin pump? I assume the kids, I mean, it's attached physically to them. Um, is it is it something that's fairly, you know, like the size well, of a fist or what kind of, give me a sense of what that looks like. 
there's two different types. One one has a device that's about the size of an old pager, if you remember what those looked like, that's actually stuck to the body. And the other one is probably more like the size of a cassette tape uh, that a child would wear, you know, attached to their uh, uh, to their belt or in a little uh, pack that they'd carry with them. Interesting. And what's the difference for them? I mean, I, I, I don't have diabetes and uh, a lot of people out there don't, but w they wouldn't really understand what these kids are dealing with. So when they have this on them and they don't have to rely on, on uh, you know, injecting themselves with a needle, as far as life quality and what they're dealing with, what kind of difference does this provide them? Oh, that's an interesting question. There's two ways that people classically look at this question. And the, the first is the uh, more objective one, which is studies that look at does an insulin pump help someone to manage their diabetes better and uh, you know in science often that means looking at a hard outcome like the, the blood sugar levels um, but I think there's also we have to acknowledge there's a really uh, strong importance of having this technology available for lots of the other reasons that are a bit harder to measure but the quality of life uh, improvements in having a child have less regular insulin injections and having more flexibility in their day because they can literally push buttons on a device to change the amount of insulin their body is seeing, which is absolutely different than the prior paradigm of choosing a dose of insulin in the morning and hope you, hoping you got it right for the whole day. So what happens now, doctor? You've done this study, you've, uh, you've tracked a number of children, uh, you've found this tangible result, there's something to hang your hat on as far as uh, providing a little bit of hope and change and difference for these kids, but um, is this just go out now and it becomes an available practice, or, or give me a sense of what happens now. The study's out, uh, what's the next step here? Yeah, well, you know, Shane, I really appreciate your interest in what we've done here. Uh, I was finding in my own practice, when I sit down and meet with families, that I'm kind of left to my own discretion to decide who I advise should move forward with diabetes technology. And I have to tell you, just like technology in our daily lives, diabetes technology is advancing incredibly quickly. Uh, so fast so that it's actually hard, I think, for everyone, families as well as providers, to keep up with it. And, you know, that led me to wonder how we as the medical folks are, are providing good input to families about what the right choices for them are. Specifically, I'm aware that in some provinces in Canada, children who have harder to manage diabetes actually might be excluded from having the option of having insulin pump therapy. So what we did with our study is we looked at all children over a five-year period who were started on insulin pumps here at BC Children's Hospital. And then we divided them up into the groups that had really good at-target blood sugars before starting a pump, those who were kind of in the middle somewhere, and those who had higher blood sugars and what you might call more difficult to manage diabetes. And what we saw is actually that those youth who were struggling the most before going on a pump, but who were started on a pump, actually had the biggest improvement in their blood sugar levels after starting on the pump in the year and a half that followed that. So that's really, um, I, I think, gives us some pause about how we are helping families to make decisions about what might be right for them. Well, uh, I want to wish you continued success and congratulations on the study. I'm sure that uh, this is welcome news for, for families of those young children, and hopefully there will be more advances very quickly here in the future. But uh, thanks for taking some time out of your day and uh, providing a little bit of spotlight on this issue, Doctor. 
Thanks, Shane. We really appreciate it, and I hope our work here in this study helps families and, and their providers to help make better decisions for them as we continue to try and provide equitable, equitable care across the province for kids with diabetes. Amen to that. That's Dr. Brendan Hirsch. That's Dr. Brendan Hirsch from BC Children's Hospital uh, spending a few minutes this morning talking about uh, some advances as far as insulin pumps and the difference they're making with young children uh, who are battling type 1 diabetes, providing a little bit of hope as they deal with that. Uh, We'll take a quick break here in the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll uh, talk about uh, some serious staffing shortages, crisis level staffing shortages when it comes to seniors care here in the interior. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Real pleasure to join on the program this morning. The CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, uh, Daniel Fontaine. Good morning, Daniel. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Very well. Thank you. Thanks for taking a few minutes to uh, to chat. Now we got a pretty serious topic here. Uh, it looks like we got a pretty serious staffing shortage that's impacting the interior. Uh, as your release notes, a health human resources emergency to being declared by some long-term care homes because of this staffing shortage. Uh, quite a number of the shortage uh, as far as FTE hours. And uh, the thing that jumps out at me in your release is apparently you're saying uh, that uh, people are trying to come in from out of province here in BC to fill this training gap or having to fly mm-hmm. here on their dime. They're having to mm-hmm. find their accommodation, and uh, this is the part that kind of staggered me. They take an assessment test to say, okay, you know, you're qualified uh, to work here in our province, but there's a 99% fail rate for that? What, what's going on here? That was absolutely shocking to me. I mean, I knew there was there were issues, and we, we could see the number of positions that were being unfilled in the interior continue to rise month by month. Um, so trying to source where this is coming from is, is a bit complex. But uh, So what happens is if you're in Calgary or you're in Regina and you want to move to the interior and you want to accept a position and work as a carried, uh, you have to be tested. The province implemented this in January of 2018, this new testing regime that requires now the carried to actually pay $800 out of their pocket to be tested to confirm that they're a trained carried, even if they've just completed the program and say, Alberta or Saskatchewan or they could be a registered nurse coming in from out of country and or a licensed practical nurse the province now requires you to not only take the test but you can't take it in the interior so if you're uh, you're going to have to go down into Vancouver uh, pay for the travel likely pay for accommodation and pay for the $800 and then this is the real kicker Shane is that the the pass fail rate is 1% pass 99% fail and in, in many cases, these, these uh, potential carriades are being told that they may have to do remedial training, a whole bunch of other things and, and hoops and hurdles that are being put ahead of them. Some of them are looking at a bill of 4500 bucks when this is all said and done. We have a situation, Shane, where our members are now flying in like oil rig- rigger workers in, in Fort McMurray up north. We're having to fly in staff into the interior health region. We have care provider that told me last week that they may not be able to open up new beds in the interior health region. We've been waiting for two years, two years working with this ministry, with this minister Dix and this ministry. We were promised last fall there would be a health human resource strategy in partnership with us, with the sector. It's now uh, May of 2019. We still don't have anything there. And that's what led our members to finally just declare the emergency that we need the premier to step in we need the pre- this is going to require a political solution. This will not be dealt with at the bureaucratic level. 
So, I mean, the goal is laudable. You want to make sure that care aides coming in know their stuff and can perform their job mm -hmm. effectively. I mean, I get that. But a 99% yeah. fail rate is shocking to me. Uh, how do you address this? How do you accomplish the goal of, okay, uh, this person from Saskatchewan, okay, they, they know what they're doing, we can find work for mm -hmm. them, they're qualified, uh, without kind of going down the path that we're on right now? I mean, is it, is it changing the test, Daniel? What, what has to happen? Yeah. I think there's a couple things that has to happen. First of all, we have to have a whole review of this BC Carried Registry. I think it's, I agree with you, it's a laudable goal. It's gold standard, platinum standard. I, 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 we all think, we all agree that that's wonderful. But at the end of the day, we have an aging population. We have in, in Calgary, for example, just last week, they had a, a job fair for carriage. They had well over 500 carriage show up looking for work. Um, many of our members would have loved to have offered them employment immediately working in the interior. They simply couldn't do it. So we need to revisit that whole carried registry process, make sure that it's not reducing the supply in the way that it is currently right now. But as a temporary measure, we've, we've asked the Premier to look and, and do the following. If someone has been trained in a, in a bona fide, a, a registered public institution in Alberta or Saskatchewan, they're fully trained, we can... They can demonstrate that they're trained. They've passed a criminal record check, so the employer can confirm that. Let's get them to work immediately in the interior and address the fact that we have over 240 full-time positions that are not uh, filled right now, full-time equivalent positions. And I can tell you, we're going into the summer schedule, and that's what's triggered our release, is that our members are preparing for the summer. Staff are leaving. They're going away on holidays. We're going to have critical shortages. And... I know that, you know, if this were a fire or a flood or any other type of emergency, the province would mobilize and get activated. And that's why we've, we've openly asked the Premier to step in to, to uh, allow for the, the carried registry to allow these trained uh, workers uh, to come in from Alberta and from, and from Saskatchewan, at least on a temporary basis until we can figure out what's going wrong with that carried registry and then hopefully resolve the problem in the long term. If we don't address the problem, if the help doesn't come, Daniel, what does this mean for, for mm -hmm. my community, for Vernon, for Salmon Arm, for places well, like that? Uh, Vernon, Kamloops, Penticton, it doesn't matter which community, uh, there will not be the care staff this summer. And we know that the staff that are there right now are working intensely. It's a very you know challenging position at the best of times. They need time with their family. They have to have time off. It's part of a healthy, obviously, uh, work-life balance. So we want them to be able to do that. So that's the, the first thing, is that we may not have the staff uh, required to meet our contractual obligations to the health authorities this summer, but probably more importantly, there are new care beds that have to come online, and we need to be bringing those care beds into the system and adding them in because we know people are on wait lists and they need to get their grandmother or mom or dad into those care homes, and we, we will not get the authority from the health, uh, we will not get the permission from the health authority to open up those beds until we can prove that there's enough care staff, and we simply can't do that right now. Our members are telling us there just aren't enough bodies unless there is a, a temporary measure put in place to allow us to, to hire fully trained uh, care aides from Alberta who are more than willing to come in and to move into the interior. We're hearing a lot of cases where, um, even at the job fair, where a spouse may have uh, finished or retired their work and they want to retire in the interior. And um, typically it's a female-dominated occupation, so the husband may have retired and, and the wife would like to continue working. They'd love to be able to move into the interior and to be able to do that. And the current red tape and bureaucracy ahead of them, just, it's just a real turnoff and, and they're just not, not going down that road. 
What aspect of this uh, would involve uh, increasing training spaces in province? Uh, people who are trained here and thus mm -hmm. don't have to go through the hurdle of sort of being tested for for their level of knowledge or certification to to work in in BC. What what part of the solution yeah. does that involve? Well, that's an interesting question because there's two parts to that. First of all, the uh, training capacity in the interior. When I did my uh, visiting my listening tour a few weeks ago, I was uh, astounded to learn that the number of training spaces in the interior is actually going down. They're actually classes that are not being filled um, so there's there's that issue of the capacity with of training directly within the interior health authorities going down but also we know that the province funded uh, I think it was last year or maybe about 18 months ago provided additional funding for just around 400 additional spaces in the province of BC and they're not even able to fill those positions so we know that uh, there are challenges just with simply using a kind of a 1990s model, which is just to fund more classes. That's why we've been saying to the province, this requires a much more robust approach. We need a health human resource strategy, not just money thrown at some training courses. We have to educate the public, our younger workers, new immigrants, about the opportunities to work in healthcare in general and specifically in seniors care. And none of that is happening, Shane. And that's why I'm frustrated because we put out that that uh, all have branched to the province, to the minister, and, and now that's why we're asking the Premier to step in and, and to sit down with us and to let's get this, this plan implemented as soon as possible, but at least as a stopgap measure, make sure that the staff are there in the interior for the, for the seniors who need them this summer. Any word back, Daniel, from either the Premier or the Health Minister yet or no? Not yet, uh, but we're hoping and hopeful that the Premier will uh, will uh, intervene and we're, but my phone is on standby. I'm ready to meet with him at any time. So if he does call, we will uh, be down to Victoria as soon as possible and then see if we can roll up our sleeves and and then solve this problem because it is actually, uh, in terms of the short-term uh, issue, it is a very easy problem to resolve, but it will take political action. It'll take the, the, the Premier to step in and to resolve this. Otherwise, we're going to be facing this crisis uh, over the, the, the entire summer. Daniel, thanks for uh, taking some time this morning. Really appreciate it. And, and we'll have to keep an eye on this and see what happens. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Shane. That's Daniel Fontaine. He's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. As you heard, they're waving a big red flag around staffing shortages in the interior, something he says needs to be resolved at the political level. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we're going to touch on some big bad news for the city of Quinell. Uh, Tolco shuttering its sawmill there. Uh, not good stuff. Uh, the mayor will join us next. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. A uh, real pleasure to welcome to the program a uh, one-time independent MLA in this province now, the mayor of Quinell, Bob Simpson. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Good morning, Shane. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Uh, not the best of topics to talk to you about. Uh, your community is grappling with something that you've long seen coming, but Tolco is uh, shutting down its sawmill in your community and scaling back shifts in Kelowna. As I understand it, about 250 jobs combined uh, at risk or out the window here. Uh, again, you, you and I have talked about this uh, over the years. Uh, you've definitely seen the writing on the wall here, but I guess the first question, uh, what's the impact to Quinell? What, what are you guys going to be dealing with in the aftermath here? Yeah, the numbers that we're getting from Tolco is 150 direct jobs, and of course, as you uh, have rightly indicated, that gets amplified 
into the contracting community, the business community, and so there's always a multiplier effect there. We've been expecting the TOCO shutdown for some time. They took an indefinite closure last year, and when we were talking with them about that, you know, our comment was an indefinite closure in today's labor market is chasing your workers away. Uh, so the, the writing was on the wall for this mill for quite a while. It doesn't, it doesn't mitigate the impact when workers are finally told, yeah, this is it. It's a permanent closure, and you now have to move on to something different. From a community perspective, we've been planning uh, for this as a council over the last two terms. We have a pretty aggressive future forestry think tank initiative underway to maximize any of the jobs that we do get from the forest sector plus a diversification strategy. And fortunately, we have a provincial government that's making record level investments in communities like ours. And so we have uh, you know, a record level of public sector investments coming on stream uh, over the next few years that will help with some of the worker impacts. Now, on the provincial level, Bob, as, as you know, uh, the Premier has launched a sort of a, a renewal of the forestry sector, maybe a touch ironic considering the topic we're discussing, but uh, it's going to be something they're going to go down into each area and try and find something unique to each footprint, uh, not a one-size-fits-all model. This is uh, not quite off the ground yet, uh, but here you are dealing with the sawmill closure that's complaining about a lack of fiber supply, that kind of thing. Uh, how does that mesh with sort of renewing forestry in and around the Quinell area? Yeah, it absolutely meshes with what we've been doing. In May 2017, uh, we started to really take a good hard look at what was going to happen with our annual allowable cut. And in May of 2018 began a, a process we call the Future Forestry Think Tank. It's located at the timber supply area. So it's looking at the where the fiber comes from, saw logs and other forest fiber to feed our mills. Quinell is fortunate in having a, a very robust forest sector, notwithstanding Canfor mill closure and now the Toco mill closure. We have two pulp mills, medium density fiber board plant, uh, a large sawmill, one of the largest in the world, another company that operates a pretty innovative uh, remanufacturing facility and a plywood plant. So we still have all that horsepower. And what we started saying to the province is, we're a pretty interesting community to start looking at how you manage the land base differently to prevent these large-scale disturbances, whether it's beetle or fire. And at the same time, we have a diverse manufacturing sector that could look at how do you reinvent the manufacturing to match what's coming off the land base. So in talking with the Premier and the Minister around this, our ideas mesh with their idea of looking at an interior forest revitalization strategy that is at that timber supply level, it's the right scale, it's at the community level, it's at a land base that can be understood and proactively managed. And so we fully support that process and we've been in dialogue over the last month or so with the province about meshing our local initiative with their provincial initiative and we're engaged with our local industry to make that happen. Considering the reinvention on the ground there, Bob, but just out of curiosity, uh, what, what impact does the softwood lumber dispute, which is grinding on in the background, have on being an anchor to that? 
Well, the software lumber dispute, I think, has always been a bit of a red herring in some regards. You know, the previous administration hid behind it not to come up with a comprehensive forced health investment strategy. They didn't want to engage in conversations about forest community transition strategies because they kept raising the red flag of, oh, softwood lumber, softwood lumber. In my estimation, softwood lumber dispute is going to be there irrespective of what you do to help us uh, to transition. And there are exigent circumstances or emerging circumstances allowed uh, in that agreement. So we could have been a lot more proactive if we had the right argument to take forward. I mean, it's self-evident our forests are getting blown out. It's self-evident that the saw log profile in our force is diminishing dramatically, which makes it self-evident that we have to transition our communities and our forest sector. So uh, the current government doesn't seem to be hiding behind that software lumber dispute as much as the other one did. And they do seem to be willing to be much more proactive and then make the argument up that what they're doing is acting in an emergency situation to reposition our industry. How's this all going over at a community level? I know that Quinell uh, is in some ways like Kamloops undergoing a transition from what it was perhaps two or three decades ago uh, to something else. Uh, but you get this this news which uh, can be considered devastating for a community like yours, 150 jobs out the door. Uh, are people, uh, I mean, considering the work you've done, are people adapting to this? Has it been a shock in the community? Is it, I mean, what's the community level reaction to all this? Yeah, I was chatting with some of uh, uh, the workers and uh, some of their family members uh, over the weekend at community events. and. For the most part, uh, all of those uh, individuals directly impacted were really aware this was going to happen. Many of them had begun to put plans in place and looking at alternate work opportunities. Some had been going through retraining. So, again, that long kind of lead time that they've had within the mill itself has helped a lot of the families that uh, have been proactive to start their adjustment strategy before the actual announcement was made. And I think over the last number of years, since 2014, we have had a pretty aggressive uh, dialogue with the community about being in transition. We've made no bones about it. We've uh, done some pretty dramatic changes to the city's financing to deal with an infrastructure deficit and to be able to invest in the community at a different level. People have seen those investments. We're really repositioning the community as a place that people want to come to and to invest in and to, to live in. We've got a lot of people moving up from the Lower Mainland and even the Okanagan and finding an affordable and interesting lifestyle as available to them here. So, and in in coupling that with a provincial government that actually isn't turning a blind eye to our issues that's engaging with us and helping us as a community i think the general tenor in the community is there's there's a leadership now in place between council and the province that is going to be realistic about what's going on but is also going to be proactive in trying to get us through this transition period well, I can tell you, people here in Kamloops will hear a lot of familiar things when you just said there about uh, people moving into the community. We're seeing that a lot uh, here and, and obviously in your community as well. So in light of all this, what's the next step, Bob? Well, the first and foremost, uh, this week we'll be working with the province. Uh, I've already had uh, conversations with the minister and with staff uh, in his ministry about making sure that you know we're firing on all cylinders with respect to the immediate impact of the 
workers, uh, making sure that any of the needs for retraining and for the transition for them are in place. And that will include uh, impact at contractors. Uh, we often forget uh, that there's independent uh, businesses and contractors that are impacted by this that don't have the same supports that workers do uh, with EI and with uh, retraining initiatives. And then longer term, the community uh, will continue to see council work on our transition uh, strategy. I think all the right things are in play for us to continue to work with this. And as I said before, uh, this was a known uh, uh, announcement. We, we were expecting it you know, year over year. Uh, so it's not something that's catching us by surprise. And we will continue to grind away at the economic diversification strategy we have in play. And uh, before I let you go, I'm going to throw a wildfire question at you. I know that uh, the caribou in general uh, has undergone a couple of really, really rough years in the wildfire front. Um, this one kind of got going a little bit over the weekend, but we're not really into the thick of it yet. So what's your sort of sense about the wildfire season to come in light of uh, two historic ones? It's caused some, certainly some stress and tensions leading into it. Yeah, absolutely, and and we are very, very aggressive on that front. Uh, we have a brand-new community wildfire protection plan. Unlike the last one, where over a 10-year period of time, only about 10 hectares uh, were treated out of a, an identified 2,200 hectares of a critical fuel loading that needed to be addressed, we're looking at putting, we're using all of the resources available to us and looking at treating as much as 400 to 500 hectares. And we're in an ongoing conversation uh, with the ministry staff here to be building proactive fire breaks around the community on the crown land that's outside of our wildland urban interface. So again, we're just in a different dynamic now where we have a collaborative and proactive partnership with our local district forest staff uh, to deal with our more immediate risks. And then part of our future forestry think tank process is looking at managing that landscape differently. And again, uh, we just issued a paper last week where a technical advisory committee has been struck uh, to begin to plan that landscape. So we're doing everything that we can, but certainly I hear in the community, especially with the news out of Fraser Lake, a high degree of trepidation and fear that we may be heading into another pretty ugly wildfire season. Yeah, no kidding. Well, fingers crossed it doesn't happen, but uh, these days you just never know. Uh, Bob, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day to chat. Thanks for calling, Shane. And that was Quinnell Mayor Bob Simpson discussing Tolco shutting down its sawmill in the community and what the community is doing uh, and has been doing for years now in preparing for this very thing as well as touching on some wildfire topics. And that brings to an end this edition of the Woodford Show. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time tomorrow. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.